text for the sermon this day is taken from Matthew 16. So if you'd like to look at it, would like to open it up in your pew Bibles, or maybe you brought your own pew Bible. It is Matthew 16, verse 13, and in the pew Bible it is page 977. And so we are kind of continuing through this whole thread that we've been going through for the last several weeks. So we began this kind of journey with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and then you had the faith of the Canaanite woman, which was last week, and now this week we are at Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But if you have your Bible spread out like right now, you see we're in chapter 16, verse 13. Last week we were at Matthew 15, verse 21. Obviously we skipped some stuff. And so why we skipped it is pretty much because they only could get through so much during, through the course of 52 weeks. Otherwise we have much longer scripture readings. So, but anyways, what kind of happened in between, Jesus fed the 4,000, that was Jesus feeding the Gentiles, for the 5,000 was feeding Jews, the 4,000 was feeding the Gentiles, the, he got into some fighting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now here we are in verse 13, it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So where did they get this answer? Well, some of it, you could actually go backwards to chapter 14. At the very beginning, it says, At that time, the Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. So that is one of the reasons why some people say John the Baptist. And actually, if you go into Mark's gospel, there, it goes even farther and lists out all these names. Because that was bas basically Jesus is asking for the water cooler answer. Granted, there is no water cooler yet. But he is asking them, what is everyone saying? Who am I? And no, he didn't ask them, do you know what, who the Son of... He didn't have to ask them who the, if they knew who the Son of Man is. They know when he says Son of Man, he's talking about himself. So he doesn't... So he's talking about himself with the third person. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Which, by the way, is kind of an interesting answer, because Bar-Jonah literally means son of Jonah, which, and Jonah is a variation of John. And it's kind of interesting because, back in verse 4, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so this is the sign of Jonah. The confession that Peter just made. So blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, 
you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's more to go in that the rest of those verses are its own sermon. But verse 18 has been the source of quite a bit of debate through the history of the church. So when Jesus says that upon you, upon this rock, I will build the church, who is or what is the rock? And again, no, it is not Dwayne Johnson or Kid Rock. So it is, who is he talking about? Well, basically, Jesus is doing a compare and contrast. The name Peter literally means rock. And so he's saying, Peter, you are a rock. And in fact, he's giving him the name of Peter. But then he says, on this rock. Now, here's the, this is something you can't really capture in English. Because in English, we don't have as much of the masculine and feminine words. But in the Greek, of the word for rock is in the feminine, which means unless Peter has undergone a sex change, Jesus is not talking about Peter. He's talking about something else. And in fact, he's talking about the confession that Peter just made. That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in other words... Peter, you are, this, you are a rock, but on this other rock, the confession you just made, I will build the church. So in other words, that is the foundation that the church stands upon. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this whole sequence of questioning, the first question, a question still to ask today. Who do people say that Jesus is? And there are so many answers to that question in our culture. Now, if you want to ask the most hardened of atheists, they will tell you, well, Jesus, he's just fantasy, he's fiction. He's no different than Peter Pan or Captain America, they might say. But if you look at the evidence, there is plenty of historical evidence that Jesus, in fact, lived in history. For one, yes, this is evidence. If anybody tells you, oh, that's just one book. No, this is not one book. This is what we call a library. A library, it is 66 books. 27 of them are talking in detail about Jesus by nine different authors. Yes, ultimately God is the author, but he works through the hands of nine individuals to write the New Testament. And then you add to it the writings of the church fathers, like Clement, or you can look at the Didache, St. Barnabas. You can look at Ignatius, or the Shepherd of Hermas. All writings confessing to Jesus as the Christ, all written within less than a hundred years of the events recorded in the Gospels. You add to that the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius. I know those are all names that you're like, who are these people? 
And that's okay. The point is that you have historical documentation for Jesus that is incredible for the ancient world. And so it actually takes quite a bit of faith to say that Jesus never existed. Even Bart Ehrman, a renowned atheist, has had to challenge other atheists who come out to him and say, hey, how, don't you think it's ridiculous that people believe Jesus existed? And Bart Ehrman said that he, he acknowledges it because if he did, he'd probably lose his job as a professor because he's incompetent. No competent historian says Jesus never existed. Secondly, so let's say they admit that Jesus existed. Then they say, well, you know, Jesus, he may have lived, but he really, he was just a nice guy. He did some nice things, and that's it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he explored this idea that Jesus was just a good teacher, just a good person, and nothing more. And so what he did, he examined the things that Jesus did. And most notably, he forgave people their sins. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean. So let's say if I just walked up to Miles, yep, you just got singled out in the sermon, if I just walked up to Miles and just slugged him in the face, who is the only person that could forgive me for punching Miles in the face? Miles. He's the only one that can. Someone else cannot come up and say, hey, I forgive you for punching him. You can't do that because I didn't sin against you. But Jesus, when he forgave someone's sins, he forgave them of every single sin they had ever committed. And the only person that can do that is the person whom every single sin is committed against. Jesus, God in the flesh. So if Jesus is not God, and he was forgiving sins the way he was, he is not a good person. Because he does not have authority to give that forgiveness. But if he is in fact God, then he has that authority. And we're going to get to a little bit later as to why you hear your sins forgiven here. But that is the evidence he is God. And when he calls himself the Son of Man, he is actually, again, claiming to be God. So if anybody says, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, he called himself the Son of Man all the time. And when he was saying that, he was not saying he was just the son of some dude. He was referring to Daniel chapter 7. And the one in Daniel 7 is being worshipped. And the only person that is to be worshipped is God. So claiming to be, so he's, that's why in, in the trial when he says, I tell you from now on the Son of Man will descend upon the clouds. That's the reason they tore the robes, because they knew at that moment Jesus was claiming to be God. And if he was not God, he was committing blasphemy. So he cannot be a good person if he is not God. As C.S. Lewis came to it, it came to this reality, is that Jesus could only be one of three things. He could either be a raving lunatic, the devil incarnate, or God in the flesh. There is no other option. 
based upon the things he said and did. And yet, the, but in our world, let's say they confess that he is God. Confess he is God in the flesh. Which, by the way, through the history of the church, that's been a battle. Because there are those who say that Jesus is just a nice guy. He is, he's human, but he's not God. Or you have some who will say he's God, but not human. Fortunately, that one has not been as common in our day and age. But let's say they confess that he is God and human. They'll say, well, the reason Jesus became human flesh was so that way you can have the abundant life. And when I say abundant life, not the way that Jesus meant it, but rather the abundance of possessions. In fact, they'll preach from the pulpit in congregations that fill up to like 60,000 people, and they'll stand there and preach and say, God has not promised to barely get by life. He has promised the abundant life. And that means a life of possessions and you'll never get sick and things like that. Now, of course, people like that because who doesn't want to get rich? Who doesn't want to have a whole bunch of stuff? The only problem is, is that Jesus never promised that. In fact, Jesus promised quite the opposite. He said, if they hate you, if they hate me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. Does that sound like joyous, wonderful, abundant, financially wonderful life? No. In fact, every one of the people that Jesus is talking to, the disciples, every single one of them would be executed for being a Christian, with the exception of the Apostle John. So clearly, the pro either Jesus was a liar in saying that he was giving them of possessions, or he never said it. And I'm going with, he never said it. But there are those in our day and age that will preach it. And they will teach it. Because it will fill the church to the pews. But the problem is, if you follow to its conclusion, you may be the most faithful of persons, and your life will fall to shambles, and you will think, God must hate me. Why is he letting bad things happen? And unfortunately, what has happened to many at this time, point is they take their own lives. Because if God can't even, because they think not even God can love them. What's the point of living? Very prominent in our culture, but that is not Jesus. Or maybe this is the old battle of the Reformation. Because as you notice in verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church. This was a big source of debate between Lutherans and Catholics. Because as far as Catholics were concerned, the rock is, built upon, is Peter. And Peter is the first pope. So the Reformation was fought over this particular issue. But also tied to it is the idea that Jesus, when he came to be human flesh, he died for some of your sins. So once you were baptized... He's forgiven you of every sin up to that point, but after that, you're on your own. You've got to work for it. Now you can do, come to, to, the, to communion, you do confession, you kind of cut down on a little bit. But here's the problem. If you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, 
Sermons, sins are not just in what you do, it's even what you think. Because Jesus talks about this quite a bit, that even your thoughts are sin. And when you realize how much you sin, you realize you can't keep up with it. And when you realize how much you sin, you can't even do enough good works to compare it to it. And not, not to mention the whole idea that good could cancel out a bad deed. That's not even logical. I mean, imagine trying to do that if you're, you get arrested for... You know, you get arrested for robbing the bank, and you go to the ba- go to the judge and say, Your Honor, yeah, I robbed the bank, but look at all these nice things I did for my neighbor. I think that cancels it out. It's like, no, you robbed a bank. You're going to jail. Now, they might be nice and cut down on your jail sentence for good behavior or whatever, but ultimately, you still suffer. A good deed does not cancel out a bad deed. Somehow we convinced ourselves of that, but we, we know logically that's not true. And so the idea that you had to be good enough to be saved, that you had to fulfill a certain number of works, leads to utter despair because you cannot match what God demands. And God's demand is perfection. And that means if you have sinned even once, You are guilty of breaking the entire law. That's what James wrote. So if your salvation is laid on your back, you have absolutely no hope. But see, that is not who Jesus is. Peter's confession. And the question that comes to you is, who do you say the Son of Man? Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter gave an answer. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. That means you are anointed for one purpose, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does he do it? By shedding his blood on the cross. By going to the cross as a living sacrifice for you. He shed his blood, died, was buried, and rose on the third day for you. And he doesn't say, okay, this is just enough until you've done a few works and then you've got to fill it out. No, he covered every last bit of it. Indeed, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Free gift. Free. Think about that. You go, when you have a birthday or a Christmas or whatever, and your parents or whoever gave you a present, they'd go, here's your present, where's the $50? That wouldn't be a present if they asked for $50 back. That's a purchase. And not to mention, I wouldn't trust that because it could be a box full of socks. I'm like, I don't think this is worth $50. They could be really cheesy-looking Christmas socks or something. But that's not, that's not a gift. That's an exchange. Or if you go and do a job and you work for whatever, and your boss gives you a paycheck, do you ever think that's a gift? I mean, yes, in a sense, there's a gift that you have a job. But ultimately, it's a paycheck. If you have to work for it, it's not really a gift. The gift is when you have nothing to give back. 
The gift forgiveness of sins, life and salvation is a free gift of God in Christ Jesus, delivered by the shedding of his blood, delivered in baptism, delivered in the word, delivered in the Lord's Supper. It's a free gift. Nothing you do. And yes, he is a historic Jesus. He is a living God. He actually walked and talked on this earth. So when we treat our faith as if, oh, that's just, you know, that's just your personality. This is my personality. You know, you like sports. I like Jesus, you know, type thing like that. No, Jesus lived in history. He is the living God. The son of the living God. He is the Christ. And the thing is, upon that confession, the church stands. And not even the gates of hell can strike it down. That means no matter what the week may bring you, no matter what may happen to the world, nothing can take you down. Because if you are by the blood of Jesus, a son of the living God as well, by adoption, you forever stand. Eternal life is yours. And along that way, I have to come back to this, though Jesus, only God, can forgive all sins. question might ask, then why do churches do this? At the beginning, we just began the service, and I forgave all of your sins. Where did I get that authority? Well, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is the thing that is bound? Sins. What is loosed? Sins. The keys are not given to just Peter. The keys is given to the entire church to say, by the authority of Jesus, you say, your sins are forgiven. That is not just to the pastor. The pastor does it publicly, because otherwise it would be chaotic if all of us are talking all at once to one another. It's like, okay, you know, I know how long it takes for a Lutheran to stop talking. It's like 20 minutes on confession. Boy, it's taking a while. So we have one person does it publicly. But if you're talking to someone who's burdened by your sin, by their sin, you have the authority and say to them, listen to me, Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. And guess what? That forgiveness holds true. Because the keys are given to all Christians. We rejoice that in the Christ, the Son of the living God, until he returns, in Jesus' name, amen.